You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two-hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi-platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedouin Soundclash, I Mother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as a Juno-nominated singer-songwriter and blues guitarist. So welcome to the podcast, J.W. Jones. J.W., how are you and how good does it feel to have just released your new album, Everything Now, on Friday? This is fresh off the press. Yeah, man. it's uh, I'm great. I'm, I'm, I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I am awesome. Thanks for asking. Awesome, awesome man. Um, yeah, no, it's exciting. I mean, this album has been in the works for like four years. So um, so it feels great to finally have it out there. It's like giving birth. <laughs> there you go. Not not quite as painful as actually giving birth. But I don't know about that. Close. Actually, there, it's possible. It is possible that it is as painful. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. more, more emotionally painful, I suppose. So you said it's like a four year process. Was it delayed because of the pandemic where you just had to wait for things to fall into place exactly yeah a few of these songs i had actually started recording them in like 2018 so um you know with the intention of releasing a, a studio album and then um when the pandemic hit that obviously paused everything and that shifted me to making sonic departures which was um some recordings that had already been you know we're already in the can and then i just need to finish it and that way i could do that over uh over screens with uh with eric eggleston here in ottawa perfect so we are going to do a full two-hour deep dive we're going to go through your life your career your discography and we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on that new album but we have a long journey to to go through to get to that point so we're going to go back to the beginning and before i do that i like to share with our listeners how the guests and I ended up here today. So it shows the importance of networking, of building community, of fostering relationships. So in our case, uh, we're both from Ottawa. I've been hearing your name for decades. Like I'm not exaggerating for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And I have to give a shout out to my dad because my dad is a massive blues fan. And since the very start of your career, uh, he's, he's been he's been singing your praises. He loves the Ottawa music um, scene. So he loves the Cooper brothers and you and monkey junk and Tony D and Sue Foley. Uh, so I have to give a shout out to my dad. He's the one that put you on my radar. He's been going to blues fest to see you and rainbow bistro and all these places. So shout out to Dennis Martin and you and I first got in touch because uh, I had Glenn Milcham of Blue Rodeo uh, on the podcast last year, and I saw that you and him, you guys were were friends, so I reached out and you provided a quote. You said some kind words about Glenn. After that, I, I had uh, uh, Dick Cooper from the Cooper Brothers on. You provided kind words. Uh, then I had Gordy Johnson of Big Sugar. You provided kind words. So uh, I want to say thank you for... for uh, being so supportive of the podcast and providing those kind words. And last but not least, in November of last year, you messaged me, you said, when will I be famous enough to come on the podcast? So <laughs> we decided that 
your new album was coming out this Friday. That would be the perfect time for me to listen to it. Then we could dive into it. So JW Jones, dreams come true today. You're here on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. It is a dream come true for me. Thank you. And uh, you a shout out to your dad, dude, Dennis. That's that's so cool, man. Uh, I, I love that, that, you know, some folks are that entrenched in the Ottawa scene and know everything that's going on and, and then passing it down to their kids. That's pretty cool, man. So thanks to uh, Dennis. Yeah. So what's cool is you and I are around the same age, but because blues, a lot of times there's an older, uh, an older audience. That's where my dad comes in and he's a massive fan. So I love that, you know, the, the old school blues fans love your music, but then because you're young and you're hip and you're putting out new music, you're, you're kind of introducing blues to maybe the next generation. Do you feel like that's accurate? Uh, You know, it's, always the goal like the goal is always to take the music and to make it your own somehow you know somehow put your own stamp on it and um and bring it to the next generation and hope that you know something you do whether it's a chord change a melody a guitar riff whatever will somehow get them to go hey what is that and then they'll find old blues eventually you know so that's that's the goal but um i mean that that's in the sense of the traditional side of it hoping that they get into the blues but also in terms of the music and my career and development and stuff like that, you know, of course, we always need younger generations to become interested in it, because if they don't, then, you know, our audience, unfortunately, is is an aging population, you know, so we need people at the shows in 10 years, you know what I mean? Yeah, so I, I saw that you have a few Ottawa shows coming up, either solo or with, with the trio. Uh, I already have tickets for all of Blues Fest, so I will be there, and uh, I will have to get my dad out so that uh, we we can make the introduction, we can make his dreams come true. So, uh, so let's go all the way back to the beginning. You're clearly passionate about music. Where does this love of music come from? Is there an earliest musical memory that comes to you now? Well, I mean, my my dad um, plays acoustic guitar and, and folk music, so. Um, around the house between him playing and my mom having a, a huge record collection. Um, well, not huge, but like a record collection. Um, you know, I was around music all the time. They were listening to Deep Purple and Tom Petty and, you know, Alice Cooper and Colin James and Brian Adams and, you know, all kinds of rock stuff, you know, and, and my mom had like Muddy Waters albums and um, Fabulous Thunderbirds. And, you know, so there was a lot of a lot of music around and my dad was you know often playing um folk covers or his own original material so i was around music literally since i was born um and then another big part of it was uh, the blue skies music festival if you're familiar with that um i think it's in clarendon ontario and um so i grew up from the time i was born going to that festival every summer and just being around live music and people playing guitars around campfires and stuff like that. So that's really where it all came from. And then I have, I have this memory of having my dad's acoustic guitar and a spice bottle, you know, like a cinnamon or something like that. And, and using it as a slide and thinking I was making Hawaiian guitar sounds, you know, (laughs) so that's one of my earliest guitar memories, I think. Can we take a moment to acknowledge the great taste in music that your parents have? All those bands oh, that you made. Man, yeah, so cool. And I, I I have a lot of my mom's records now. And it's like, and the Beach Boys, I should have mentioned the Beach Boys. They were one of my first favorite bands. Um, yeah, absolutely. Great, great taste in music. 
So when when we scheduled this interview, I put out the bat signal to the JW Jones fans to send in questions. And uh, I'd like to start with the first two fan questions now. Uh, they're they're kind of similar, so I'm going to lump them together kind of as one question. So uh, Elizabeth Moon asks, she says, I'd like to know how old he was when he started playing guitar and what made him gravitate to becoming a blues guitarist. And then the second question, and I'll give a recap so you remember all these questions. Uh, Ian Arden asks, I would love to know how he got into the blues and why he chose blues as a career. So how old were you when you started playing guitar? Uh, how did you gravitate towards the blues? And why did what made you wanna be a blues guitarist as a career? Okay. Uh, so I started on the drums when I was about 12 years old, I believe it was. And I need to like fact check that. I don't even know the answer to that <laughs> when I started playing drums. But, um, and then I, I kind of tinkered on guitar a little bit, but it, it was really seeing BB King in 95. So I was 14 or 15 years old and I picked up the guitar and just wanted to play the guitar. Um, so I had a friend of mine, um, Manny, who taught me my first few chords, you know, like cowboy chords, C, F, G, and stuff like that. And then how to play a 12 bar blues. So that was really where it all began. Um, and, uh, you know, you were saying you'd, you'd repeat the question. I was like, nah, I've got it. What was the other part of the question? <laughs> oh yeah. What, why blues? Why blues? And then what made you want to do this as a career? Okay. So why blues is, um, that was again, the influence of Manny, um, and uh and just friends at the time i i had a a bunch of greek friends so there were a couple guys around the corner from me manny and george and then there was manny and artie in another house a few blocks away and they're the two they're all cousins and they have this tradition in greece where it's like your your second born is your whatever your father's name or something like that so that's why there are two mannies so there's little manny and big manny little manny is now working with the weekend in la he's one of his like i don't know in the management team or whatever he's been with them since the beginning in Toronto and um and big man he's always taught guitar and and um all of those guys listened to blues and rock and Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and they got me into that stuff even though my mom had all those records it was those guys who introduced me to it and then I came home and I'd say this this song smoke on the water you know it's so cool and my mom would be like yeah I have it right there and I was like no you don't you know it's like these guys are cool and my mom was like this here it is and then I put it on you know machine head going oh it's so cool um so they got me into blues and um and and I realized that that Hendrix and all those guys they were all just playing Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and BB King and all that kind of stuff right so when I heard this guy Stevie Ray Vaughan playing Voodoo Child Hendrix song I was like well who's this guy now you know what I mean and then it just it just starts to open up and then you can see the lineage right yeah oh the lineage absolutely and and that's my favorite part about blues is that it doesn't matter if you're talking about Miley Cyrus or George Thorogood or whatever it all goes back to blues you know so um so when I found Stevie Ray then it was okay, well, Stevie was talking about B.B. King and Albert King and then da, 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 da. And so that's how it went to blues musically for me. And, I, and then I just love that stuff. Uh, Career-wise, I mean, I only play blues. If someone wanted to hire me to play 
you know, like in a rock band, I, I'm not your guy for that, you know, or, or anything else really. I just, I play blues. I'm self-taught um, other than those first few chords and, and things like that. I'm self-taught. So I'm not really, um, it's just, there was never another option that I wanted to pursue. You know, I just loved this. And my idea was like, how do I get a band together and make something sound good? And then like that step happened. You know what I mean? And then, well, I mean, first the guitar stuff and then the band stuff. And that's like, well, how do we get a gig? And then that, I just, it was my dream to play on the same stage as Tony D at Tucson's. How do I, imagine me playing on that stage at Tucson's, which is now a shawarma palace here in Ottawa, Bank and uh, Bank and Hunt Club. Um, and that was my dream. You know what I mean? And then that happened and I was like, well, how do I play at the Ottawa Blues Fest? You know, there's always just another thing to do. So um, it, it's not really, I didn't say to myself, I want a career in blues. I just started taking the steps, you know, incremental, tiny incremental steps. And, um, and that's what brought me to, you know, where I am today. It wasn't, it wasn't like, here's the grand plan, go just little steps. And, and yeah, that, that's how it, it all came to be. And with Tony D, that was that was on drums, right? I did play with Tony on drums. That's right. Yeah, exactly. It was like, how do I get on that stage? And it was like, it ended up being playing drums with Tony D for a couple songs. You know, um, I used to go down to um, the Rainbow on Sunday afternoons or Tuesday nights. They had jams, and they'd have a different host each week. So um, whenever it was Tony D, I'd definitely get down there with my brother, and my brother played bass, and so he'd play bass and I'd play drums. And here we are on stage with Tony D like what's happening. And then, so I got to know him and, uh, and then he invited me to play with him at, uh, at Tucson's one time, which was like the dream. Cause it was like a real show, you know, at those jams, let's be honest, there were not that many people there. You know what I mean? But at a show on a Friday or Saturday night at Tucson's, it was packed, you know, 150 people. And it's like, this is the big time, man. <laughs> so, so that's how that happened. Uh, someone in the Cooper brothers camp reached out to me and said that Tony D is interested in being a guest for a two hour deep dive interview. So I'll have Tony D on as well. Uh, so, so, uh, so I'm excited for that. I know my dad will love that as well. Um, so like you're known as an incredible guitarist. You're, you're talking about, you know, you started on the drums, you were playing drums with Tony D. Would you like, where is your, your level of, playing on the drums versus guitar because the guitar it's like you're you're incredible and i'm just not as familiar with your background on the drums well i mean i don't know where i would place myself in terms of talent level or skill level it's it's interesting i mean i can play a lot of things but i don't play correctly so any drummers listening to this like i my technique is terrible and so therefore i would probably be able to get through like I don't know, maybe I could do half an hour, 45 minutes. But after that, everything would just my hands and, and things would be tired because I'm not playing correctly. And that's that's the importance of taking lessons and understanding how to do things properly. Um, but um, I mean, I played along with all the old rock stuff, you know, blues stuff. And I, I basically learned how to shuffle by watching Chris Layton with Stevie Ray, you know, on like Live at the Elma Combo or something like that. And um, so, I, I mean, I'm. I'm decent on the drums, but I even hesitate to say decent because I don't know where my, um, I don't know where my meter would be in terms of staying on tempo perfectly and all those kinds of things. 
So it's so hard do you to see say. yourself primarily as, as a guitarist then? That would yeah, be I mean, yeah, for sure. But I mean, on drums, I played with some incredible musicians like uh, uh, Jumpin' Johnny Sansone from, from New Orleans, for example. I played with Big Jack Johnson, who's like a Mississippi blues legend. You know, he had me on stage with him at Tucson's. And I was like a kid. Um, so, I mean, I've had opportunities to play with some really incredible musicians and, uh, and so I've done that thing, but that doesn't make me a great drummer. It just means I played with those people. Um, but every show I play a bit of drums. So I play, um, we do this thing where we switch instruments. And so I get to play drums for like three minutes every show. So that's, that's awesome. The, uh, the band Sloan, uh, in their live show, they, they always, they rotate. So every every musician can play every instrument. So yeah. as they go through songs, they're rotating and they're like drummer is then on bass and vocals and they just keep going. And it's, it's very cool. Yeah. They're always, yeah. they're always rotating through. So you got started on drums, uh, guitar kicks in at one point, do the vocals and the songwriting, uh, come in, come into play as well. Oh, good question. So, um, when I first started playing guitar, you know, I was 15 years old and, uh, I would ask Tony questions all the time, you know, what should I listen to, blah, blah, blah. And he was introducing me to certain artists and I just kept playing and playing. And then at some point I realized, and then I tried to find a singer. So I found a singer who, who was with the band for a little while. And, um, this is like 98, you know, to, to, to 98, 99, I had a singer and, um, and they're still under my name because back then all the bands I was listening to, like Anson Funderburg and the Rockets, Mike Morgan and the Crawl, um, all these bands, they were at Ronnie Earl and the Broadcasters. They were all guitar driven bands with a singer, but the name of the band was the guitar player, which is like not common. You know what I mean? So, um, so then I, I started, I connected with this guy, Rick Holmstrom, who is now playing with um, Mavis Staples. And uh, he, at the time, was with Rod Piazza and the Mighty Flyers, a band from California. And Rick is an incredible guitar player. And I remember he signed a CD to me once and it said, keep swinging and start singing. And, and his point was, you can't have a career as a guitar player. You know, I mean, you can, but it's unusual, very unusual, right? So start singing. And I was like, okay. I'm going to do that. So then I started singing at home with my favorite records, you know, and, um, and then I, I joined this battle of the bands in what year is that? Like it must've been 99 or something. Um, yeah, I think it was 99, late 99. And, um, and I had two songs that I was going to sing in the set and it was like a, I don't know, 20 minute or 30 minute set. And uh, there were all these, like, at the time, it was like grunge and alternative rock, like all these kid bands playing grunge and, and alternative. And we were the only blues band, you know, so this is here in Ottawa. And it was one of those things where <laughs> the deal was, here's a stack of tickets. You have to sell these tickets. <laughs> so it's like every it's band. Like the Supernova Battle of the Bands and those things. Yeah. Where, I mean, this is how the promoter makes money is that the bands have to sell the tickets and it's like, you don't know anybody. You're just your mom and your dad and their friends. Right. So anyway, um, somehow, so anyway, we're playing the set and, uh, I remember going up to sing the first one and I sang the first two verses and then I broke to play my guitar solo and then I was supposed to come back and sing again. And I was too terrified. I was like, that's enough of that. 
And so I sang two verses the entire set. And we won the thing. We won the whole thing. And at the end, it was like, what? We're the only band playing blues. All these other bands are playing like what was popular, you know? And uh, so I won some studio time. And that was what kicked off understanding how to how to work in the studio. So, yeah. So I, I just had a big rec guitarist, Chris Cadell, on the podcast. And when I asked him to give advice to his younger self, he said, start singing earlier and it's yeah. like the advice you're giving that and he's a great singer great harmonies all that stuff but if two guitarists are auditioning for a gig if they're the same quality guitarist but one can sing they're going to get the job all the time so i think that's great advice where you said if you really want a career in music you got to be able to sing as well yeah i actually listened to that whole podcast just the other day it was great really enjoyed it Awesome. That was the, yeah. the extra view I saw go on there was from you, which is awesome. <laughs> um, who would you say were the, your biggest influences on guitar growing up? So when you were starting to play, starting to learn, who are those guitar gods uh, that, that you look to that said, okay, that is the pinnacle of what's possible if I actually practice? Well, uh, I mean, equally at the time, like it was Tony D., Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimmy Vaughn, BB King, Albert King. I'd say that was probably the first core, you know, group. Um, and then it opened up after that, you know, T-Bone Walker and Albert Collins. And I mean, I could list names forever. So that, that would be where it, where it all began. And how much do you think growing up in Ottawa shaped you as a musician and also as a person? Well, it's incredible. I mean, the, the thing about Ottawa when I was growing up is there were two blues clubs. There's the Rainbow in Tucson. So uh, on any weekend, you could figure out who was playing there in the newspaper. And remember those? We had newspapers. And they had weekly, they would tell you who was playing at the bars on the weekend. <laughs> What's happening? It's such a different world now. It's crazy. <laughs> I know. I know. And, and, uh, and I remember both, you know, the rainbow printed out these little calendars. So I would grab one and I'd have it at home. And Tucson's had these little cards that were like business cards. And, um, and so um, I think that was an enormous part of my development was being able to go there with my mom to, you know, I, I'd go with my mom to Tucson's because you had to be with an adult because it was still a restaurant, but you had to be with an adult and the rainbow, I couldn't go there for, for night shows on the weekends. Um, but I could somehow go for the jams because I was jamming. So it was like, there was this weird, you know, uh, the rule book was a little interesting. Um, but um, between those two clubs and the Ottawa Blues Fest, I was exposed to so much, you know, incredible music, incredible bands. And so I think that's a major, major, major part of why I was so interested in blues and able to keep that train moving forward. Um, as a person in Ottawa, I mean, I don't know, would I be any different in any other city? I don't know. Maybe but, uh, if you're in, you know, LA or, or New York, yeah. you'd be different. I mean, mm -hmm. that environment will shape you. Yeah, it's pretty safe here, you know, like, and by safe, I mean, uh, safety, but I also mean safe as in like, it's a kind of a sleepy government town, let's be honest, you know, like everybody here works for the government. I mean, at least when I was a kid, it was that or whatever, one of the telecom companies <laughs> yeah my my sister my uncle my best friend all work for the government so i can vouch for that exactly yeah so um it's comfortable though and and i love ottawa it's um people from my whole career have said why don't you move to la or texas or new york or you know you're not gonna you gotta move to those big cities to make it 
And, and I just never thought that was necessary because to me, you have to travel anyway. So you might as well have a home base that makes sense and then tour and travel from there. How, how amazing is it that Blues Fest, you know, one of Canada's biggest festivals, one of Canada's best festivals, and it, it focuses on the blues. How amazing is it that that is just here in, in your hometown, you know? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, so, so. I mean, I have I have a hundred blues fest stories, but one of my favorite ones is um, July nineteen ninety seven. Um, I'm either seventeen or just about to turn seventeen, um, and I'm walking. It, it's the day of of Anson Funderburg is playing, and it was Anson and a room full of blues and Tony D and um, Doctor John, and um, so I was there super early, middle of the day, like the bands aren't even. There's, there might be sound checking. It was like a Saturday or something. And the music probably didn't start till like, let's say one o'clock or 2 p.m. And I'm, I'm there at like 10, 30, 11 a.m. And I'm walking through the park. This was at Majors Hill Park, I believe. I'm walking through the park with a, a good friend of mine, Brent. And we're saying like, how, how can we figure out how to meet Anson Funderburg? Like, how can we do this? I wonder how we can do this. We're talking about it. We're talking about it. And this guy walks by and we go, that was Anson Funderburg. So we run after him. Hey, Anson? Yeah, how are you boys? Like he's like a Southern guy, you know, from Texas. And, and then we talked to him and uh, I had him sign my jean jacket. And um, and I said to him, I said to him, do you, have a, um, do you have a fan club or something I could join? And he said, uh, he goes, uh, no, not not really. We don't really have a fan club. And I said, okay, okay. Um, hey, is it okay if I, I video your show? And uh, he goes, yeah, yeah, go ahead, video the show. I said, okay, cool. All right, nice to meet you. See you later. Off we go. So then I, I video the show. And after the show, he comes to the to the gate. So back then, the artist would almost always play and then come over to the gate and sign autographs for the 20 people that would actually come up, you know? And so there I was, and he finished signing all his autographs, and he said to me, um, hey, do you know of a, a place to eat around here? I'm 17 years old. I'm not the guy to ask. Yeah, McDonald's is your budget. Yeah. I don't know. I literally said, and this is hilarious. Well, the Rito Center is right there and they have a food court. It's <laughs> not a bad answer if he likes variety. <laughs> exactly. But it's just funny because like these are guys looking for like real food, not this nonsense, right? So uh, he goes, okay, okay, thanks. And then he goes, I'm going to go check with everybody. And then he goes back and then he comes back to the fence and I'm standing there with no joke, six or seven of my friends. We're all between the ages of 15 and 18. Okay. And he comes up, he goes, okay, well, you know what? We're going to eat back here. They've got food for us back here. And I'm like, oh, for a second there, I thought I was going to go with Anson Funderburg to the food court. I thought that we were going to hang out like, uh, and then he goes, but hey, do you guys want to come back here and eat with us? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> yes, please. He tells the security to let all of us in. We're all backstage now, and we're sitting at a table, and they're serving us like we're or like they're the artists. And it's just so funny to think back to that. Um, and we hung out all night, and then by the end of the night, he's like giving me his phone number. He's like, if you ever need a place to stay in Texas, here you go. And and we stayed in touch ever since. I talked to him like last week. And, uh, and Anson is like a hugely influential 
Texas blues guitar player. He's on one of the Fabulous Thunderbirds albums. He's got an entire career of his own. And interesting uh, fact, you know, Beavis and Butthead, written by Mike Judge, right? Illustrated and written by Mike Judge. Mike Judge is a bass player. Mm. Mike Judge was Anson Funderburg's bass player on tour. He's on the albums. What was Mike Judge doing on tour? Drawing. <clears throat> What's he drawing? A guy with big blonde hair named Beavis. Guess who that is? That's Anson Funderburg. <laughs> so, wow. Anson it, or Beavis is modeled after Anson's look with the big blonde hair. And so uh, there's a little pop culture reference. This this is a true deep dive with with those facts that you mm. bring to the table. Uh, I actually, yeah. so I was in Toronto for 11 years and I just came back in the last couple of years to Ottawa. And since I've been back, I've been getting the full Blues Fest passes. So I was there for like 12 days uh, last summer and then I got the full pass for this year. So I'll see you there for your set uh, with, the, with the trio. Uh, but Man, a Blues Fest is such a big part of uh, the Ottawa music community. So I'm, I'm yeah. excited for for this year. Uh, as we keep moving through your your uh, your upbringing of you you growing up in music, if I met you at 12 years old, who would I be meeting? What do you like at 12 years old? At 12 years old, so I'm I'm probably playing drums. I'm uh, I'm wearing a Chicago Bulls hat. Um, probably Michael Jordan effect, or yeah, 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 exactly. Um, probably a, a pinstripe um, starter Blue Jays jersey, you know, um, horrible cutoff shorts and big silly looking running shoes. <laughs> That's what I'd look like. Um, what am I doing though? You know, I, I'm I'm into sports and, uh, you know, music for sure. Like, you know, all the rock stuff I was talking about earlier um, and playing drums. And uh, yeah, I, I was... I mean, I definitely wasn't one of the cool kids, but I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't picked on either because I always had like cool friends. My friends were like the cool guys, but I wasn't cool. They were just, I was just with them. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, um, I really didn't like school though. I, I was really, I just disliked school from day one. Uh, it was not for me. And, and in high school, even I would go to school and then I'd go to home, go home for lunch and I'd go back to school and then I'd go immediately home. Like I just, there's nothing about school that I was, I wanted, you know, I just wanted to play music. So, um, so I guess, I guess that's a bit of who I was at the time. Yeah. It's sad that the, the education system just isn't really created or supportive of musicians or creative people, artists, entrepreneurs. It's, you know, schooling is basically to um, develop factory workers. Like that's the beginning. So when you have someone that's creative, that thinks out of the box, it, it's it's very very hard. So musicians generally grow up thinking they're not that they're not that smart because yeah, totally. they're not doing that well. But it's like they're not yeah. interested. It's not things that are ever going to serve them. Yeah. So uh, it, it's nice when you finish school and you dive into the thing you're actually passionate about, which in your case is music, and you thrive and you realize that oh, I'm just I wasn't being measured with the right criteria. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is exactly right. And I mean, we had um, music classes and I did take drums. It's the only class I ever got 98% in in my life was drums, <laughs> music, grade 10 music. Um, and so, I mean, there was a little bit of music and there were coffee houses and things like that. But um, yeah, the academic side of it for me was just not happening. And I, I remember when it was time to look into college or university, 
I, I didn't have like, I wasn't in advanced math and advanced sciences, so I couldn't go to university. So my option was college. And so I remember having the Algonquin book and going through it. And it's like, there were like almost no options for me because I didn't have advanced math. So I remember that being a moment of like, wow, all these other people have all these options. And it even said in the book what the approximate annual salary was. And I'm going, like, I'm, I'm going to make half of what these guys are going to make, you know? And I remember that being pretty depressing in the sense that like, I wasn't depressed, but I was like, oh, I guess this is what I have to do now because of my stupid brain that can't handle advanced math. You know, this is what it is now. And I went into college and then got a record deal almost immediately. So I saved the day. So you got 98% playing drums in your music class. Do you think if you played more cowbell, it might've been a hundred percent? What do you think? For sure. Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. Not going to argue that. (laughs) If, if we were friends at 16 years old and you invited me over to your place to listen to music, what albums would you be spinning at 16? Um, Definitely Stevie Ray stuff and fabulous Thunderbirds. Um, I had this, this double album, actually, it was Stevie Ray opening for the T-Birds at some event in Austin or or somewhere in Texas. And, um, it was just the coolest thing ever because it was like both cool bands on the same show. And so, yeah, I would have been listening to that stuff for sure. So final question about growing up and then we'll dive into your, your solo career and your album. So, uh, musicians, a lot of times were told, you know, having a career in the music industry, it's not realistic. It's a pipe dream. You're supposed to get that good education, get a job. That's it. Did you ever deal with that kind of resistance from family or friends? And if so, how did you overcome that? In your case, you have musicians in the family. So it might've been a little bit easier than others. Yeah. Well, I mean, my upbringing was a little bit unusual and, and, uh, not super traditional. So, um, my grandparents are a big part of my upbringing and they lived a couple blocks away. So my grandfather was really wanted me to go to Queens university, like the rest of my cousins and him and family tradition and whatever. And so it was always this thing where he would, he would get me like bonds at Christmas time. And this would be the investment that was going to go towards my university education. And, um, and so that's the path he wanted me to take. And he did everything he could to help me with, with math. And I just, I couldn't even remember my time tables. It's just, there's some part of my brain that was just like, that's not, not going to happen. And he offered me money to learn my times tables. And, uh, I just never, I could never do it for some reason. It's very unusual. Um, so when I started playing music, it was like, okay, yeah, you can do that, but you're going to have to go to school though still and get a real job and you know, whatever. And so I got into college, started doing that, going the computer systems technician route. And, um, and then I got this offer for a record deal. So I met someone online. This is so weird. I met someone through like a bulletin board, like a BBS or whatever we called them back then. And this guy said, I think I can get you a record deal in Germany. It doesn't sound like a scam at all, right? Exactly. On crosscut records. Here's the deal. If you get a deal, you have to give me X amount of money from your advance. 
And I was like, okay, this guy's name was Chris. He was somewhere in Texas. So I sent my cassette tape to Germany. All of a sudden, they want to give me a record deal. It's legit. And it was paying like $5,000 up front um, as an advance against future sales. I'm 20 years old going, what is happening? And this is a real label. I'm looking at it on the internet, the very young internet, and it shows all the artists and everything else. Um, and so when I said this to my grandfather, he was like, um, well, okay, you can give it a go, see how, see what happens. Like I support that, but you're still going to school. Okay. So then I'm still going to school. And then this man moves here from Toronto. Um, this guy, Fred Litwin, and he was in charge of the, um, the marketing for the Pentium three chip for Intel. Okay. In Asia, he cashed in his stock options, left Intel and wanted to start a record label in Ottawa. So he calls me up. He says, I, I heard about you and I want to, I want to talk to you about your album. I can license it in Canada and the United States. This is the same album that's already been licensed in, uh, in Germany. And, uh, I'm like, yeah, right. I get this email. I'm like a record label, a blues label in Ottawa. Like, yeah, sure, buddy. And I remember saying something like that. That was like borderline rude. Like what, why would you say that to somebody <laughs> looking at it now? My cocky 20 year old self being like, yeah, sure, buddy, whatever. Anyway, we met up with him and, um, uh, Steve Mariner was in my band at the time. So Steve and I met up with him and we signed the contract and this was legit. I became the first artist signed to Northern Blues Music, a label that eventually had Otis Taylor, Rita Shirelli, um, a huge Gordon Lightfoot tribute album, um, Paul Reddick. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And, and, um, and it, it became real. So at that point, now they want me and Steve to go to, to Vancouver to do the uh, North American Folk Alliance and go to Toronto and, and do all these gigs and okay well where are you gonna book now you gotta book a gig in toronto now and da, da, da. and it got too much for me to do school and this and my grandfather said okay try it for a year and see what happens and uh and that was it i never went back to school so <laughs> it's pretty cool that's crazy so for yeah. for our for our loyal podcast listeners that check out every single episode regardless of who the guest is for those that have yet to hear your music how do you describe it i know that's like the hardest thing to do for an artist but well i mean it's interesting because i think some artists i mean i'm sure everybody develops in their own way and and um their music changes over time but for me when i first started out like the goal was just to sound as traditional as possible to gain the respect from all the people we were listening to at the time you know um, but now it's just, it's not like that anymore. Um, I, I did gain a lot of respect from those guys and I'm very grateful for all of that. Um, but now I'm, I'm, I'm making music that excites me and I don't care if it excites anyone else because it will, you know, that's the thing. I, I don't mean, I don't care, but the point is if I dig it, then people are going to dig it. You know, not everybody though, not everything is for everyone. Right. So um it's it's blues roots rock and roll um you know i've we've got some new orleans influence on this new record um and i just i'm trying to just be true to what melodies and chord changes and and uh grooves feel good to me so um if i were to compare it to other bands i'd say it's like some really weird mixture of 
you know, the fabulous Thunderbirds. Um, I don't even know where to go with this. Um, I don't know. I I don't even know what to say about it. It's, it's so strange. Like there's so many influences here, but it all kind of comes out sounding cohesive in the sense that it's, it's me playing guitar and singing and, and I play the way I play, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's blues where some of it is more traditional, but then some of it has more rock to it. Some of it has a little bit of a dance background. So there, it, it, so it's like traditional, but also current, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, you mentioned dance and I, I know where you're going with that, which we'll talk about later with the, the new record. Um, but uh, when you say dance, you mean like, there's just good grooves like, that you could good grooves. Through. Yeah. It's not like, you know, it's not techno. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, man. So it's, for the new listeners uh, who I can't describe this very well to, you just go and listen and I hope you like it. <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure they check out the new album by the end of this interview. So normally when I do a two-hour deep dive, I go through the entire discography for these artists. And normally it's three albums, four albums, maybe five albums. In your case, you're, you've just released your 12th album. So despite it being two hours, which is longer than most interview, most interviews, we don't have time to go through every single album. And I really want to focus on the new album. So what we'll do is we'll just kind of cherry pick from different albums and highlights and special guests. And, uh, and we'll make our way to the new album. Does that, does that work for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay, so the first album you released in 2000, this is uh, Defibrillating. Am I saying that correctly? You got you got it. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm a pro. I'm obviously a pro. So when you think back to that debut album, what thoughts, memories, emotions come to you? I mean, this kickstarted the entire journey you've been on since then. Man. Um, <laughs> okay, so what's crazy is that we had that band um was together and that's pierre Crechet, who's who's um now with uh do you know pierre now i'm gonna forget the band name i'm terrible um soul jazz orchestra soul jazz orchestra that's pierre on keys. yeah a killer tour all over europe and and they're amazing and pierre's just such a talent um when i met pierre he was like a jazz guy you know and i was a blues guy we're like let's mix this together and so between the two of us that he was in the band even before Steve Mariner was in the band and then Mariner joined and then it brought this like Chicago blues element because he was playing harmonica and so it was us three Nathan Morris on bass and this drummer Steve Hiscox but the drummer was like a very last minute addition when a good friend of mine who was playing drums moved away to Kingston he said I'm moving to Kingston for school and so I can't be on that album I think he was afraid of getting locked into something um, but he was like the guy for the job because he knew all the blues and swing stuff. And we hired Steve Hiscox who's a very capable drummer, but he was like a jazz drummer. So he wasn't playing the same way as a blues drummer would. And so I, I just remember going in and it's like every song on that album was like barely rehearsed. It was just like whatever came out at that time, you know, and, and there's, it was barely rehearsed. I'm pretty sure we did the night shift where it was like, you start at um, 10 PM and you go till 10 AM or some ridiculous time like that. And um, I remember just being so excited about 
recording and also being extremely nervous, extremely, extremely nervous. And, and to boot, you know, I had mentioned that I only had sang at that one show before I had to do vocals on this album and like, I don't know how to sing. I don't know what I'm doing. So I remember being in the um, the vocal booth and just doing it line by line and trying to get it to to make sense. And back then, there's no auto tune. There's no nothing. So it's it's it comes out the way you sing it. You know, there's no and, safety uh, net there. There's with technology. no safety net at all. So um, anyway, so so the, the album has great energy though. It's very raw. The mix is. Um, very uh roomy so you can kind of hear everything bleeding into each other which is kind of what we wanted and so um yeah that's what kick-started the whole thing so in 2004 you released the album my kind of evil this features vocals from colin james uh how does he come into the picture well okay so so i do have to add in an album in between just because it it's goes into into the the answer this question yeah so in 20 uh 2002 i really sound called bogart's bounce and that was the first time i worked with kim wilson from the fabulous thunderbirds um which was huge you know enormous enormous thing happening for me when i'm like 21 years old um i had asked him hey can i uh do you want to be on my record and i'm a kid like i'm, I'm a kid asking a literal rock star who's been like top of the charts all the big late night shows do you want to be on my record and he said oh you know I'm really busy right now. I, I, I don't think I can do it. Um, so I asked his piano player, Gene Taylor, who played with James Harmon and all these, the blasters and all these big bands. And Gene said he would do it. So Kim got wind of that. And then one day I get a call from Kim Wilson and he goes, Hey, I've been thinking about that. And you know, uh, I'd like to help you out. And I said, what? Okay. What's it going to cost me? He goes, well, you know, here's what I charge BB King. And it was something like, $2,000 a day or $5,000 a day, minimum of two days, flights, accommodations, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and he said that to me, I was like, uh, but I, I, he goes, I don't expect that from you. How about this? Fly me up there and, uh, you know, get my hotel. And uh, if you can pay me something cool, if you can't, don't worry about it. You know, I, I just want to help you out. And I was like, what is happening? And so when this happened, I remember I did a, an interview with the Edmonton Journal at the time. And uh, and it was like this, that became the story. Like the fabulous Thunderbirds are helping J.W. Jones. Like this is, and then that's when things started to really open up and people were taking notice of what we were doing. And so Kim was on that album, came up. Uh, we did two nights at the Rainbow. My band backed him up. Um, and my band at the time had uh, Matt Saab, for example, who's from Monkey Junk. Um, and so we did two nights with Kim and, and then a year later we did, we did the same thing. He came up and we did two nights again. And then he said to me, Hey, I want to produce your next record. Let's make one. I was like, okay. And then I said, well, what do you think about getting Colin James on it? And he said, I love Colin. I worked with him on one of his records, you know, and wherever they were Hawaii or something like that. And, um, Okay, great. So now that I had worked with Kim, I have a little bit more, uh, I don't know, name recognition involved. So I went to Colin's management and I said, Kim Wilson is producing our record and we would like Colin James to come and sing on it. And they were like, sure. It's like, what is happening? So he flew here from Vancouver to sing two songs. And so that's how that happened. And then I'm in the studio sitting back as Kim and Colin talk about, 
you know, all their history together, all their common friends, like Chuck Lavelle from the Rolling Stones and the Almond Brothers, and like just incredible. And Colin, like literally first take, perfect. Like that guy is a machine, man. Like first take, it was done. It's like, okay, that took five minutes, you know? So incredible, man. He's awesome. I've uh, I've seen him live in Ottawa and uh, man, he's such a great vocal. Like he's a great guitarist. He's great everything, but his vocals just, you know, a lot of people can sing, but he just has such an incredible voice, just a warm voice, a powerful voice, a pleasant voice, just like, you know, you have singers like um, Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins, like he can sing, he's just not blessed with the most pleasant of voices. The opposite of that is Colin James, where it's just this warm, rounded, incredible voice. Yeah. Uh, that's how I would describe it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's and And he can turn the rasp in his voice on and off like like a switch and a lot of people they can only do that if they're really warmed up or they're hitting the top the higher range of their their um their vocal capability you know and and with him it's like he can just like go it's on and get the it's just like oh man that's so friggin' cool (laughs) so yeah yeah you, you you mentioned that you checked out the uh interview with chris cadell and and he he plays with colin james uh when he tours and uh, chris asked him for advice on warming up and basically apparently colin james is just singing all the time like all day every day he's just always singing so he's always warmed up so yeah i remember seeing colin at the rainbow he did this like club tour once and it was just before or just after we recorded together i can't remember and uh, i watched him from side stage the entire show and uh, there was a bottle of water sitting beside his his like pedal board or whatever he didn't take one sip of water for like an hour and a half and i said to him after i said you didn't drink water that entire show he goes no i guess i didn't it's like okay he's not (laughs) human he's not human (laughs) that's funny so i i there's a rumor that in 2005 you have a story with global acting superstar jeremy renner this takes place in edmonton is this true or is this erroneous on all accounts uh, no this is true so um <laughs> the club is called blues on white the commercial hotel in edmonton and um it used to be you'd play for six or seven nights straight okay and so naturally the early week monday tuesday wednesday there's not a lot of people there you know and then i mean you're playing to anywhere from literally four people like literally four up into up to maybe 30 you know maybe 50 on a really great night and it's a huge venue so 50 looks like five so one night we're playing there and um and these guys start coming in there's this older gentleman sitting by the um by the side of the stage and uh and he asked if he could play drums and i said no no man like we're not having people sit in. This isn't a jam. I found out after that, Sam Shepard. <laughs> no, Sam Shepard, though. No. Stay in the corner. Um, so that was Sam Shepard. And then we go into the, uh, we take a break and we walk around. There are just a couple dudes around. And um, we start talking. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're in town filming a movie. Yeah, the assassination of Jesse James. Okay, cool, cool. Whatever. Um, one of them was Sam Rockwell. Oh, and wow. the other was Jeremy Renner. And I I knew who Sam Rockwell was because he's in one of my favorite movies, Matchstick Men. If you've ever seen Matchstick Men with Nicolas Cage, uh, but I didn't know, I didn't put that together until afterwards. And so we're talking and 
Renner at the time, he, all he had done was, um, was it the Dahmer movie, like a Jeffrey Dahmer movie or some serial killer? He would go on. It's like the Hurt Locker that made him a huge star. And then, yeah. is it Hawkeye? I'm not into yeah. the superhero yeah. movies. He but becomes like, like, like an Academy, yeah, an Academy Award winner, whatever. But at the time, it's like, hey, man, um, so what have you done? And he's like, well, you know, I, I was in this Dahmer movie or whatever. And, and yeah, not great for picking up chicks. Ha, ha, ha. We're joking around. And I'm only 25 years old. Like, I'm I'm a kid, you know? And, um, and he goes, Oh, yeah, I like your band, man. Yeah. Uh, why don't I come up and sing, uh, you know, sweet home Chicago with you? I'm like, okay, sure. So we go back on stage. He comes up, sings sweet home Chicago pre iPhone. Nobody has video happening at the time. Like if you didn't hire someone, there's, you're not going to be video evidence of this. <laughs> he sang with us and, um, and it was cool. And, you know, we didn't get contact information or anything. It was just some guy who was like some actor doing some movie some movie in Edmonton where Brad Pitt's there and, you know, all these like huge celebrities. And, um, and that was that, like, there's no evidence of this anywhere, but he came and sang Sweet Home Chicago with us. And now he's like a mega celebrity. So it's only in retrospect that you see how crazy that was essentially. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then I put it together about Sam Rockwell. I was like, that was Sam Rockwell. And then Sam Shepard's over here asking to play drums. And we're saying no to that old man in the corner, forget it. And then Jeremy Renner comes up, one of his co-stars, and sings with the band. The whole thing is just weird. So to continue with all the random celebrities that keep showing up in your life, in 2008, you released the album Blues Blue Listed. It has liner notes from Dan Aykroyd. How do you get a blues brother to do the liner notes? Like, where do these guys come from? I don't care. Where it. do these guys come from? Well, um, okay, so with Aykroyd... The way that I connected with him was um, going back to 2001 on that first album of mine, Defibrillating, I, I did a, um, a, uh, a tribute to little Charlie Beatty. Okay. That's B-A-T-Y. And I called it Beattyology. So I guess Aykroyd asked him, he had the House of Blues radio hour for years and it was internationally syndicated. So like this was a big show. Anyone that listened to blues knew about the show. It was on Shea 106 in Ottawa. And uh, it was all over North America. So he was accurate. was introduced or, or interviewing little Charlie. And he said something to him like, so uh, you, you, uh, when you're traveling, you must meet a lot of interesting people. And then Charlie said, yeah, in fact, I met one of your countrymen, you know, JW Jones wrote a song for me called Badiology. And of course, I'm going to like anyone that writes a song for me. And in the background of this interview, you hear me. And then, um, and then from that point, so Aykroyd kind of knew about me or my music or whatever. And then I ran into him that summer in Kingston. So I'm in the club setting up to play this gig an after hours, like blues festival gig in, in Kingston. And, uh, and someone comes and goes, Dan Aykroyd's out there right now looking at motorcycles. And I said, okay. So I go out there and I go, uh, I see him. He's looking, I said, excuse me, excuse me, Mr. Aykroyd. And he's like, ah, ah. and he's just looking. He's just not really responding. I'm like, Hey, I'm JW Jones. I'm going to be. And before I could finish my sentence, he goes, Oh, JW, JW. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm coming to see you play tonight. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I'll see you there. I was like, okay. And sure enough, he came out that night and, and danced and, you know, watch the show. And, and, um, that was the beginning of it all. And then from then on, he interviewed me several times for the, uh, for the show, 
hired me to play at a um an event a couple events one was for patron tequila here in in ottawa one was he had me play at um a saint pius reunion he couldn't make it to the to the reunion so instead of him going he gave them the gift of the jw jones band to play at the reunion and he paid us and i remember very well he goes whatever your rate is just invoice me and i was like what do I put for the invoice? And I remember saying a number that was like twice as much as I'd ever made at that point. Cause it was like, that was what it should be. And, and he was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Just invoice me. I was like, okay. Like nothing to him, you know? So blank but, check. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So anyway, that's how I met Ackroyd. And um, since then, man, he's been so cool. Just a couple of years ago, he, um, oh, and he sang with us at the rainbow once too. He came out, which was really cool because that day, uh, people were like, we heard Dan Aykroyd on the rain or on uh, Shea 106 doing an interview. And he said, he's going to see you tonight at the rainbow. And he did. And he came out and then he came and sang with us and people were going nuts. It was amazing. We did a couple songs together. And, um, and then even more recently, he played uh, this down, down child blues band reunion tour at the NAC. And I, for some reason, he shouted me out from the stage. I wasn't even there. And he was like, Oh, I shout out <laughs> JW Jones. So anyway, he's just so cool and so supportive and, uh, and I'm just incredibly grateful for him to, you know, have, for all that he's done and then writing the liner notes to, to blue listed. Man, you're like the Forrest Gump of the music industry where you just show up when like historic things happen. It's crazy. <laughs> it is. Man. Or historic things just happen around you, I guess. Yeah, you're yeah, you're exactly. the one that's already there and then you, you keep a track. You're a magnet for these historic events. Uh, in 2014, you release Belmont Boulevard. This gets a Juno nomination for Blues Album of the Year. What does that nomination mean to you? I mean, this is Canada's Grammys. This is your country acknowledging your hard work, your dedication and your talent. Uh, man, it's so hard with awards because it, it's a really a love hate thing, you know, um, especially if I, I mean, I guess you could say the same for rock or any other type of music, but with the blues, it's really complicated because, you know, you've got some artists playing this style of blues and others playing this style of blues. And it's like they're apples and oranges, you know, so to compare them or to have them competing with each other for an award, you know, I find that incredibly um, unusual, I guess is the best way of putting it. But there, um, there could also be not just like different styles of blues, but there could also be like an artist that's doing mostly covers versus one that's mostly originals. Like how do you, totally, how, totally. Do you do how, how do you, and, and I mean, you could say the same for rock, you know, one voice versus another voice, a male versus a female vocal, you know, like what's better. There's no better. You know what I mean? So um, when I was nominated, you know, I was obviously thrilled because that's, like the pinnacle of Canadian award success in, in the music world, you know? And so I had really odd mixed emotions about it. And, you know, I thought from a, from a publicity standpoint and from a promo standpoint, it's really, really great. But when I went to the actual Junos and felt the vibe, it was in Hamilton that year and was connecting with all these incredible musicians, Matt Anderson, Steve Hill, Steve Strongman. Uh, you know, I, I ran into, um, uh, Alanis Morissette on the red carpet, you know, like I, I felt this insane sense of community. And I was like, oh, this is actually so beautiful that everyone's together celebrating great music. It doesn't matter what, who wins the award. It really is that you're 
you know, people say it's an honor just to be nominated and that becomes a joke, you know, within itself. It's like, it's an honor to be nominated. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, but seriously though, just being in the same sentence, being in the same, um, you know, chapter as, as all these artists for that year, it's, it's incredible. And, um, and it is an honor, you know, so it's pretty cool. It's also amazing that once you're nominated, you're always a Juno nominated artist. I mean, that's yeah. how I introduced you at the start of this interview. I mean, that's like, that's the, the biggest stamp you can get almost. I mean, other than winning. I right. Guess. <laughs> but it's so, man, most people will never even get nominated. Right. So it's, it's true. It's, it's true. hard enough to get nominated, let alone win. Yeah. And, and I, I don't really have any understanding about how the metrics of these things work because for years and years, I was like, well, you have to be on this label for that to happen, or this thing needs to be happening for that to happen. And every year there's some artist or, or, or a couple that I've never even heard of that get nominated. And then I go, oh yeah, it's not about popularity. It's about the art of that project, you know? And, and then you really have to hope that it is because of the art that has been created and not because this artist did 200 shows and this other artist did 20 shows, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah. I I've actually been a judge for the Juno awards, not in your category. So it's not your, it's not my fault that you didn't win that year, but, uh, it's, it's such a strange thing where basically, so I was doing it for songwriter of the year. This is back the year where the weekend won. This is a okay. long time ago. It was in Calgary. Yeah. It was probably a decade ago. And basically they send you this software that you log into. And there's like 40 artists nominated for songwriter of the year. And they provide three songs for each artist. So this is hours and hours of music. So you have to listen to three songs from say 40 artists and then you have to do a rating system where you put, you know, one through 10 that this person should win through to 10. And then they they do a compilation and there's like a point system of whoever gets this many ones are worth this many points and yes. this many twos. So it's this weird amalgamation. So it's, it's really tough because, you know, say songwriter of the year, it's not just blues. It's like every genre. And... So you have to not have a bias of I prefer acoustic music versus hip hop yeah. or electric. You have to not have a bias of the first minute listening to songs versus 12 hours later where you're finishing all the music. And, and then you have, you know, you might a lot of times it's like old white dudes that just aren't going to understand hip hop or electronic yeah, music. Yeah. So it, it's a very human thing where there can be human error. So a lot of times, you know, albums that you think should be up for album of the year don't even get nominated. Sometimes there's one movie you think for sure is going to win best picture and it, it, it doesn't get nominated. So the awards are, are strange. So I think just getting the nomination is, is, is a big deal to start with. Well, I agree. I, I, I totally agree. It's, um, it's just, it's kind of like you're, you're, you're being spoken of in the same breath as some other artists at, at a certain level. And that's really cool. But I'll say one thing, Joel, the fact that you listened to the music probably sets you apart from a lot of the other people because you listened because you're, you know, a man of integrity. You're like, I'm going to, if this is my job, this is how I'm going to do it correctly. I don't think that most people get that far. You know, they, there's just no way, no, who's going to spend that kind of time on it, you know? And, and so then that kind of degrades the process a little bit. Right. So it's, it's complicated. Yes. Yeah. And it, it's also tough because 
you know, the weekend won that year and it was the year where he, he should have won. So his three songs were like three of the biggest songs of the year. All three were incredible. They were all like number one hits. And then of the other 40, it's like you have Neil Young and three Neil Young songs. And it's like, well, you know, Neil Young's one of the greatest songwriters of all time, but this isn't his best material. And yeah. You know, who would you have as a better songwriter between The Weeknd and him? You'd have Neil. Like, there's just all these little things you have to not yeah. have a bias of. Anyways, it's strange. We'll yeah. move on from from how the awards work. But uh, in well, can in, I say one thing about that, though? Yeah, go ahead. So so this is interesting to me because, um, well, now it's interesting for multiple reasons. <laughs> don't take offense, but because you're skipping albums, um, which you have to because we don't have four hours. Um, you, you skipped one that actually had a moment on it that is way more valuable to me than almost any of these other things. So that's Midnight Memphis Sun. And on that album, I had uh, Charlie Musselwhite and, um, and Hubert Sumlin. So their names are listed on this, on the front of this thing. And so I'm at Sun Studios trading riffs with Hubert Sumlin, the great guitar player from Howlin' Wolf. Sun Studios is like Elvis, right? Elvis, that's right. Okay. Elvis, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that to me, that moment, I'm sitting there trading risks with Hubert Sumlin. This is a guy who, if it wasn't for him, the Black Keys wouldn't have any riffs, period. Like literally. He's, There'd just be drums and vocals. Yeah, their brother's, their brother's album is like full of Hubert Sumlin riffs and they would be the first to say it. Um, and, and, uh, and Hubert is like, one of Keith Richards' biggest influences, like Keith and, and Mick paid for his funeral, you know, and, and stuff like that. So that to me, I'm just giving you some background about who he is. Stevie Ray, he's one of Stevie Ray's favorite guitar players. He's one of the guys who started doing like sliding on the guitar. Like he was doing that before anyone else was doing that. And that's what I found interesting. I become nominated for a Juno and it's like, how did it feel to be nominated for a Juno? It's like, why doesn't anyone ask me how it felt to sit beside Hubert Sumlin in the studio at Sun Studios in Memphis and trade riffs with a legend? No one asks me that question because no one knows who Hubert Sumlin is. And the general population is like, Junos, what does that feel like? It felt fine, but it didn't feel anything like trading risks with Hubert Sumlin, Sun Studios, you know what I mean? So I find that to be, and that was one of those things where it's like, why do we, why do we do this? Why do we play music? What moves us, you know? And if, if someone says what well, moves them to win all the awards, then that's fine for them. I want human experiences, you know what I mean? And, and trading risks with Hubert Sumlin is like, whoa, what is actually happening? Not to mention, Richard Innes on drums, my favorite drummer of all time, and Larry Taylor on bass from Tom Waits um, and uh, uh, the Monkees and all these, like a ton of huge bands. So um, that that's my little, uh, my little. Okay. So if we're going to educate the listeners of this podcast, what album would you recommend that they go check out to hear the For Hubert? Yeah. The, the, well, a uh, killing floor is, is that that riff that's Hubert Sumlin, um, among a bunch of Howlin' Wolf stuff, almost all of Wolf stuff, except for the very early stuff where he had a couple different guitar players. So, uh, that that's, you'll find Hubert, you know, you can find him or just go to Spotify and listen to the top 10 most played songs. And that's a good, good, yeah, of, of his, that's a good, well, place yeah, start, right? you can, but it's tough with him because he's not a frontman guy. He did release some solo records, but, um, 
but all his famous stuff is with um yeah 300 pounds of joy is another example howlin wolf tune so those two songs killing floor 300 pounds um those are a good place to start so in 2016 you release the album high temperature you have uh you have colin linden from blackie and the rodeo kings producing this guy has has worked with bruce cobra and the band bob dylan uh he's provided uh quotes for some of the guests on this podcast so he's a friend of the podcast what did he bring to the table i mean this is a a canadian legend how did he help shape that project oh man colin uh like he is one of the best guitar players on the planet period um and i don't want to say even bigger than that but like as big as that or as significant as that he's got an incredible ear for how to shape things, you know, sonically is one thing, but also having the right humans in the room, you know, so he put the whole band together for me. Um, Dominic Davis on bass, who is Jack White's bass player, um, Brian Owings on drums, Kevin McKendry on keys, like these Brian Owings is on like Robert Plant stuff, you know, it's like the best musicians. And he knew who to have in the room to give me a sound, you know, that was going to give me a sound that was different from anything else I've done before. And I had done a Nashville album before that, Belmont Boulevard that you mentioned, and that had a edgier, more rocky sound. Uh, we had Reese Winans on keys on that from Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble, Rob McNally on guitar, um, and then Tom Hammerge, the producer playing drums. That That's like got a really like crisp, rock blues edge to it that whole album okay what colin did in contrast of that was made it more made a lush warmer sounding um record and not just sonically but also the in terms of the chord chord um voicings and certain changes and yeah just he really brought a whole different element like i just i hear i'm having a hard time putting it into words but it's like a velvety warm you know warm blanket kind of sound you know what i mean and um and his talent with with producing and running the whole thing was just like mind-blowing his guitar playing is unreal just unreal yeah so I saw a video of you jamming with Chad Smith, the drummer from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. This is in 2017. How, how does this come together? I mean, I, I can't believe all these these stories. Man, you should write a book if you haven't written a book. Oh, already, man. Or a documentary the thing, or the something. The thing about it, I would love to write a book, but all the really great stories would never be able to be in there because I have a daughter now. So uh, <laughs> all the ridiculous stories that people really want to hear. They can't be. You'll have to make it PG 13. You'll have to (laughs) omit some of the information. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was actually thinking about this Chad Smith thing the other day. Um, So my bass player at the time was Laura Greenberg. And I was thinking about this. If it wasn't for her being in the band, this literally never would have happened at all because I didn't. So, so (laughs) rewind. I come down to play the show and this is at the same club as Jeremy Renner sat in with us. Um, And you stay upstairs in the hotel. So, you just, it's not far to go from there to your gig. You just go downstairs, you got your guitar on, you walk through the door, your stuff's already set up. So I walk in and Laura greets me. She's like, look over there playing pool. That's Chad Smith. And I look over, I'm like, that is Chad Smith. Cool. All right. And then I'm going to like, I've got like two minutes to get on stage, tune my guitar and start playing the show. Okay. So, um, 
what's funny though is i never would have looked over there i never would have known he was even there if it wasn't for laura um so she goes what should i do she's like a huge red hot chili peppers fan i'm like it's cool whatever i gotta tune my guitar and she goes what do i do i said go talk to him she goes what am i gonna say i am such a fangirl i don't want to be a fangirl i'm like Like, if you don't do this, you will regret it for the rest of your life, number one. Number two, you're not like some random in the bar. You're going to be playing bass on stage in three minutes. Like, that's automatically you're cooler than half of these people to him. You know what I mean? So just go up to him. Tell him you're in the band and blah, 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 and it's nice to meet him. We part ways. I go on stage. I'm tuning my guitar. She She comes up. She goes, he said maybe he would sit in with us. And I said, okay. And would that be okay? What do I tell him? I'm like, well, tell him that, you know, if he wants to, then just to come up between any two songs and, and say, hey, uh, and so so that's what happened. Uh, you know, fast forward, you know, 30, 40 minutes into the set, he comes up on the stage. He's like, is this, is this cool? And I'm like, yeah, man, come up here. He's like, hey, man, I'm Chad. Nice to meet you. I'm like, yeah, nice to meet you, man. He goes and sits down at the drums and uh, he goes, well, what do you want? What do you want to do? And he was like, a, he was like, it was like a kid, you know, this wasn't like, all right, I'm here. I'm going to play the drums now. I'm going to just destroy this stage. It was like, what, like, what do you want to do? Like, he was like a kid and it was so cool. His it was energy, just the love of music, just the love of music, man. He's such a sweet guy. I said, uh, whatever, we'll just play like a rock and roll thing. Um, he goes rock and roll by Led Zeppelin. And I said, no, no, like just a rock and roll groove. I'll bring it in. And then so I, and then he comes in. And just kills for the whole song. And so a few things. Number one, I was like, we've got Chad Smith on drums. I'm going to do drum breaks in this song. We are doing drum breaks. So yeah, did you like see a little that? drum solo. Yeah. yeah, you saw it on YouTube. Yeah. And so I gave him drum breaks, of course, because it's like, you got to feature the, the guest, you know? And so we did that. And then um, he hit the drums harder than any drummer I have ever heard in my life bar none ridiculous like smashing i mean this is a guy that plays in stadiums and now he's playing with us clowns on a blues stage in edmonton on white avenue um so there's that and then the other thing was when he came off and when i introduced him uh he goes hey man thank you so much thank you so much i really appreciate it and he was like thanking me and i was like dude what just happened so cool and then off he went and it was just like People, every phone came out though. You know, that's the difference between then and the Renner days. It's like people got wind that something was going on. And I didn't say, I don't think I ever said Chad Smith on drums because I wanted to let him have a little bit of just being a guy in the room. And so I said, our buddy Chad or something like that, you know, because I didn't want people just to go Mm -hmm. psycho and like harass him after. So he, I don't know, he probably had to leave the venue after that because... You know, it would be too much. He can't just play pool after that. I don't think. I don't think so. Yeah. So the, the the good news is, like you mentioned, in the 12 years between the Jeremy Renner story and the Chad Smith story, the video technology on phones caught up. So this is actually documented and our listeners can go check that out. Uh, just search your name and Chad Smith and, and that uh, jam will come up. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, this is the final album that we'll talk about before we do a deep dive into the new album. So in 2020, you released Sonic Departures. This is a pandemic album. So what were the the challenges in writing, recording and releasing an album during the pandemic? Okay, well, I can let the cat out of the bag now because enough time has passed. But I so I had released a live record before that. And what I realized with the live record is a lot of DJs just wouldn't play it. 
And so I knew that going into the live record, but um, it also resulted in this weird, like even though if you listen to it, it sounds like a studio album, but then you hear a crowd, okay? And that's not like a lot of live records where it doesn't sound like a studio record. It sounds like a live record, which is not as high quality. You know what I mean? But we brought Zach Allen up from Nashville to record that and very consciously wanted to make sure it sounds like a studio record with an audience, okay? So because of that experience, um, the pandemic hits, I had already had a couple of tunes from Everything Now written, but now I can't do any more studio work. So I had just played this big band show and it just so happened to be that the, um, the day before going down there to, to do the show, the uh, sound guy said, bring a hard drive and I'll give you all the tracks, multi-track. And I was like, sure, whatever. Like it's, it can't be that great. It's my first time playing with a big band. It's a whole different style. Like I have to, every song is structured by the charts. You know what I mean? It's not just like free, free will go nuts. Um, so I gave him the hard drive and we got there, he records it. And then the pandemic hits and we start looking at the tunes and going, Oh, I want to make, I said, I want to make a, a big band EP, you know, four songs, something like that. And uh, we start digging into it and I can't even pick four songs because there are so many good ones. And so Eric Eggleston from Ottawa here and, and I were like, well, why don't we turn this into a record? Like right now we're locked down. We can't go anywhere. We're working together over screens. He has his studio sound coming through my speakers. Um, we're on the phone going through it. And then the thing was, was I didn't want anyone to know that this was from a live show because the industry people might then like, you know, poo poo it and not put it on, put it on the radio or, or give it the same attention as if it was a studio record. So I overdubbed all the vocals so that they were like more controllable. And, um, I overdubbed one guitar solo. Otherwise everything else is completely live the way it was played. And so there was no writing that went into this album at all. It was just songs from the set list with the big band in, in Markham. And, um, and that's how that came together. It was like, well, let's just make this thing happen. And I love it. I'm so happy with, with the way it turned out. What's funny is the way I was introduced to Eric Eggleston back in the day when I was, I don't know, 16, uh, I was looking to play live in Ottawa. Yeah. And whenever I asked someone, Hey, how do I start to play live? Everyone said, talk to Eric Eggleston. That guy plays live almost every night. And that was my introduction. Like as a teenager, people guided me to him as the person that would know how to actually get into bars. So I've known him since then. Uh, nice. So he, he was like a, a mentor from afar for me. Yeah, he, he's a super sweet guy. Yeah, he's become a very good friend. And uh, and just he's yeah, he's an uber talent, man. He's incredible. So off of that album, the song Same Mistakes is your most played song on Spotify. Why do you think people love that song so much? That one got picked up by a couple playlists and that's, mm. that's why it, it kind of hit that hard at the time. Um, and, um, but it's a great song. I mean, I recorded that on the high temperature album with Colin Linden producing it. And that's one of the first songs that Dick Cooper and I wrote together. Um, I woke up literally out of, you know, I was either falling asleep or waking up in the morning and I was like, she makes the same mistakes over and over. I know because I'm one of those mistakes. I'm one of them. 
oh yeah, this is great. And I wrote it down and I went and started singing it and I started writing the song and then I brought it to Dick Cooper and I said, hey man, here's what I'm working on. And um, actually, no, that's not what happened. What actually happened is this. I started writing the song and um, I was messing around with Dick Cooper on chat. We were chatting and uh, he was trying to do something with social media and he like, he might've like, shared something the wrong way or something. And I said, man, you got to learn your social media, man. This is embarrassing. Like, come on, man, figure it out. And he goes, yeah, yeah, whatever. Why don't you go write a decent song? <laughs> so burned by Dick Cooper. Yeah, he got burned by Dick Cooper. And I said, it's actually funny you mentioned that because I'm working on a few things right now. He goes, oh, yeah, let's get together. I said, okay. So then that's when we started writing together was him, you know, with the burn. Um, and he's just got a great sense of humor. I love that guy. Um, so anyway, that song um, has been one of my favorite songs of of my own, and uh, thanks to Dick Cooper and Colin Linden's production on the first one, and then taking it with the big band on uh, on Sonic Departures. So with the release of Sonic Departures, that raises your total Maple Blues Award nominations to twenty one. If my math is correct, <laughs> if I carried the one. 21 nominations. Should they just rename the awards to the JW Jones Awards? What do you think? I mean, <laughs> well, 21, the, that's insane. The nominations are nice, but just wait till you interview uh, Tony D or Steve Marin or something. Like, and they have like 21 wins. <laughs> so so anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty wild. But uh, again, it's an honor to be nominated considered, you know, in the same uh, in the in the conversation, if you will. So it's pretty cool. So are, are those like the Canadian Blues Awards or what is? Yeah. Okay, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I was nominated for the first time in like 2000 or 2001 or something, whatever it was. And someone told me I was nominated for this award. And I didn't even know what it was or, or how that happened. And then it just kept happening after that. So pretty cool. So let's dive into Hirojo quickly. And then uh, I want to spend the final 40 minutes here uh, on, on the new album. So this is with drummer Jamie Holmes and singer keyboardist Jeff Rogers. Uh, uh, rumor has it that this comes together just from an impromptu jam session. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. So, so uh, Jamie is one of my best friends and he toured with me in my band. He was on that Juno nominated album, Belmont Boulevard. And, um, so Jamie and I were close and Jeff, I had run into over the years, you know, multiple times. He, he, I, I remember sitting in with him once when another one of my best friends, Jeff Asselin was playing with him um, somewhere downtown. And I sat in and played guitar for one song. And I always knew Jeff was just a wicked, wicked monster talent singer and, and keyboard player and guitar player and saxophone player. But um, anyway, so we were playing ringside for youth, which was actually, again, a Dick Cooper connection thing. He, um, he was part of that whole organization. And so he had my band playing the, the show at the event. And then he had Jeff and Jamie playing with their band called Beats and Keys at Darcy McGee's for the after party. And so it was actually Jeff O'Reilly who used to be the GM at uh, Darcy McGee's who said, you know, I'd like to see you play with those guys. You should just bring your amp down and see what happens. Maybe something cool will happen, you know? Bring your guitar down and come and play with them. And after we'd done our set and everything, I was dead tired. Like I was ready to go home, but I took his advice, brought my guitar and amp, walked it down from, um, uh, what's it called now? What's that big event center at, um, Rideau center. What's the name of that place? The it's Congress the big, center. 
It used to be the Congress Center. What's it called now? The big. Uh, I've been uh, out of the loop for a decade, so it's a huge event center now. Anyway, with the big glass, um, the, the NAC. The, I don't know. No, no, attached to the Rideau Center, whatever it is. Forget it. Um, so I walked my stuff over, and um, and put it on stage. And you know, I was going to sit in for a few songs, whatever. We played for an hour and a half straight, and so Jeff was singing all these old Bobby Bland tunes, BB King stuff. Uh, you know, other covers that they were already playing, Taj Mahal, whatever. And I was just playing guitar and I'm loving this. Like I'm just playing guitar. He's doing all the singing. This is like my dream gig. Give me a break here. It sounded amazing. We got off stage and we're like, let's do that again sometime. And then it was like, no, but seriously, let's do that again sometime. So then we, it, it became a thing and we, uh, named the band, got a set list together. And, uh, and then I said to the guys, I said, you know, I think we have a chance if we go to Memphis, you know, for the international blues challenge. And Jeff was like, well, I tried out for that thing once. And, you know, they didn't like me because I wasn't traditional blues enough. So I didn't even make it out of Ottawa. I said, man, I don't know. I think, I think we could make a go of it. And so, uh, get the power trio in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so we did, you know, we went down to Memphis within being a band for like a year, I think. And uh, we, we won the thing in Ottawa called the Road to Memphis by the Ottawa Blues Society. And then we went to Memphis and out of like 200 some bands, we won the entire thing, which is like crazy. And uh, I think it was just a really good deal because Jeff's voice, I mean, Jeff is like the best singer around, period. And when I say that to people, they're like, oh yeah, well you work with him, whatever. It's like, no, he's like one of the best singers, like in history it doesn't matter what names we're talking about it doesn't matter if we're talking about frank sinatra or robert plant or michael buble or it doesn't matter ozzy osbourne it doesn't matter these guys all have incredible ranges and abilities jeff is at the same level like that guy is just crushing he wakes up sounding like that he doesn't he doesn't warm up he's like colin james he doesn't warm up he just sounds like that already (laughs) Not that he hasn't worked on it, but I mean, where he is now, he's like one of the best singers on the planet, period, of any time frame. So um, I knew that, you know, having him singing and us going to Memphis, it's probably a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a benefit there, a little bit of an edge. So I wouldn't be doing my job here if I, if I didn't have some kind words sent in from Jeffrey Rogers. And oh um, what, what's funny is... When I asked him, hey, do you have any kind words? He put kind words like to do. They have to be kind. So uh, anyway, so I got some I got some some I was able to get some kind words out of him. Anyway. So all jokes uh, aside, he says, uh, JW is a very thoughtful, talented and driven musician. He works hard. He has a vision and a great follow through. Definitely a great guy to be on your team. And surprisingly funny. So there you go, from Jeffrey Rogers. Surprisingly funny. Surprisingly, Jeff. What is surprising about this? No, I'm just I guess he thought you just you're you're not a great hang. I don't know, and he was surprised <laughs> that you're awesome. Uh, Jeff's hilarious. We we are uh, an interesting bunch, him and I, because we're both born on the same date, July fifteenth, nineteen eighty. The same date. He was in New Brunswick. I was in Ottawa. And um, what's so funny about Jeff and I is like we clash in so many ways, personally and in business, but when we are to get when we we trust each other i guess is the best way of putting it when we trust each other it's magic so it's one of those things where it's like you know 
opposites attract, you know what I mean? And when, when those two things come together, it really creates something special. So uh, I appreciate, I appreciate that you reached out to him. Okay. So this is crazy. So I want to say that in 2022, you guys released the album, set the record, but I want to focus. So July 15th is both your birthday and Jeff, Jeff Rogers birthday. And on this July 15th, you guys are playing Blues Fest on the same bill as Pitbull and Ludacris. Both of you guys celebrate your birthdays with Luda and Pitbull. I mean, how I've what got is Luda, he's got life? <laughs> what is this life that you live? This is crazy. You're going to be throwing bows with Luda on your birthday. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. That's exactly what I'll be there too, doing. man. I got it. Let me show you. Come join us. Come Look join us. Hold on. Hold on one second. So I got, I got the blues fest lineup nice. and, uh, okay, hold on. Where is it here? Uh, let me bring the it very up. bottom. Yeah. So I got on the 15th here. Yeah. Uh, so we got Pitbull and Ludacris. So you got you guys yeah. there. So I'm, I'm coming out, man. I got my pass and it's your birthday. So we'll celebrate. Happy freaking birthday to us. Yes. That's so cool, man. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. let's uh, let's dive into the new album. We got just over a half hour here. I think that's enough time to uh, to really sink our teeth into it. So the twelfth album is called Everything Now. It just came out, so May twenty six. I've seen it debut at number two on the charts in Canada, and rounding out the top five, you're surrounded with greatness here. So there's albums from Bruce Coburn, the new pornographers Feist, and Matt Anderson, who you mentioned before. Um, what what has the reception been so far for the album? I mean, it's literally been out for like three or four days. What has the feedback been from from fans or critics? What have you been hearing on your end? Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of people are focusing on the fact that Jimmy Vaughn is on it, and I know I know we'll talk a bit about that. But the um, the response has been incredible, man. I mean, I've gotten a few reviews in already. I still need to like create some quotes and get them on the socials and all that. But um, what I'm hearing from fans and and friends and family and stuff like that is they're all like wow this is your best album yet um your vocal range has improved so much it's gone from here to here um i love that every song has hooks and and great choruses and all that stuff and i mean those are exactly the things that i was hoping to hear you know because being a guitar player and playing some cool guitar solos that's that's fine but i wanted to make an album with songs that people can sing along to number one that have great melodies and, and great chord changes and are interesting, um, but also have some serious, serious, true, honest stories in there too, you know, and, and um, really stuff from the heart that just the only way to do it is to express it through music. And, um, and that's, so this album to me is extremely special. It's, it's, I'm, I'm extremely proud of it. So I've listened to it. I don't know, four or five times just in the last wow. three or four days. Like I, okay. I really g get into it. So I actually know what I'm talking about. So I don't know if you care, but my four favorite songs are I Choose You, When You Left, To Tell You The Truth I Lied, and My Luck. So I'm a sucker for harmonies. I'm a sucker for good pop hooks. Uh, have you been, so those are my four favorite. In the feedback from other people, are there certain songs that it seems like everyone is is loving those specific ones, or is it all over the place? It is all over the place. Uh, to tell you the truth, I lied is is probably the top contender so far for favorite song, and I find that fascinating because it's like a slow blues with lots of space and um, 
I don't know. I think a big part of that, and that's another one I wrote with Dick. I think a big part of that is the the melody on the blue collar guy part. Blue collar guy. A lot it's of such people, a good groove uh, for the yeah. song. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people end up singing that part, and they get that blue collar guy stuck in their head. Um, the I'd say the second favorite is not any of the others you mentioned, but um, Papa's in the pen is like another one that people gravitate towards. Just rocking, you know. Um, but but I appreciate that. Thank you, man. So I have uh, some more kind words sent in, and this time oh it is my. from uh, Eric Eggleston, who produced four oh, of the songs oh. on the album. Uh, I had to wait. We talked about him uh, a few minutes ago, but I had to wait until now because he talks about the new album and we weren't there yet. Perfect, so, perfect. Uh, so Eric says, he wrote quite a bit here. He says, of the few tracks that we worked on here, this project was the first in my current studio after I built it. The room treatment wasn't all done, so the drums on here actually sound a little bit more live and ambient. We would bond over our love of Scone Witch and sometimes walk over and have lunch from there. JW is one of the best guitar players that I've ever worked with for sure. And one interesting thing that he would do before tracking a guitar solo is he'd dip his hands in olive oil for a minute, wipe off the excess oil, then rip a solo in usually one take. Great guy. Such American Nicholson. <laughs> is this true or is that fake news about the olive oil? I told Eric not to let that secret out. That, that is my only studio secret. And it's gonna raise my guitar playing game. I'm gonna I'm gonna, gonna douse myself head to toe and all you could you could try. Uh, but if you just do it with your right hand or your left hand only, then you get the Hubert Sumlin slides. You know, that's that's the goal there. That's the big takeaway from this. The whole yeah. two hours is for guitarists to use some olive yeah. oil. Uh, yeah. You, I, I saw that for this album, you really wanted to open up and and be transparent and and authentic and and um, you wanted to be more personal than ever when it came to the lyrics. So why yeah. is it on your twelfth album? What is it about this album that you really wanted to put everything out there? Well, I mean, my, my, my journey, my life, uh, it, it all continues, you know, and there are new stories every few years. Right. So, um, some of this is older information like, uh, Papa's in the pen. And then some of it's much newer, like, uh, when you left about my mom's passing. So, um, you know, what really happened to me is that up until 2012, all the albums I had released up until that point, I, I was like, not really i mean i definitely wrote some true stories in there but they were always about love and girls and all that kind of stuff um but it took me a long time to be comfortable with the fact that i could talk about my childhood being unusual um both my parents being you know having issues with drugs and alcohol abuse and it took a long time for me to be comfortable enough in my own skin to be able to say hey this is actually how i grew up because um one thing that was really bothering me around that time around 2012 2013 is that i was hearing rumors that people thought i was like a trust fund baby or some nonsense like this because of the way that i portray myself maybe because i wear a a, a suit on stage sometimes um i don't know where anyone got this crazy idea um but it was actually little charlie uh, one of my favorite guitar players and, and biggest musical influences who he passed away a few years ago he told me this and I was like, what? This is what that like almost nothing frustrates me more than the fact that people think I'm this thing when I'm not that thing at all. Like, that's so odd. Um, like neither of my parents 
held down jobs. You know, like I had to, everything that I've done has been by myself uh, with the help of my grandparents in the early stages. So my grandfather helped fund my first album, just the extra two, $3,000 to make it actually come out. And that is obviously a step more than most people will ever get, you know, and, and that's, that's really a huge help from him forever grateful. But from there, it was like record labels were paying for everything. And people would say, well, he must have paid Kim Wilson or David Fathead Newman or Charlie Musselwhite to be on his records, like some ridiculous amount of money. That's not true. You know, like those guys, for the most part, did it because they wanted to support me and um, and want to be part of that and just to to be supportive and cool. So this is all coming back around eventually. <laughs> but um so my my actual upbringing was very unusual um i mean like my mom was going to the food bank sometimes and getting food from there it's like i did not grow up with any kind of money and and my grandparents did their best to help where they could but they didn't bankroll anything so um along with drugs and alcohol and that kind of world that i grew up in um come characters i think that's one way of putting it so this Papa's in the Pen song is a true story. It's about uh, a man that I called dad. He was not my biological father, but he was in my life for several years, helped raise me and my brother. Um, he was my mom's boyfriend. And um, this guy was like a career criminal. He had already been in Kingston Penitentiary before meeting my mother. And then not only did he meet my mother, but he also introduced her to cocaine. And then that took her spiraling down and had to go to treatment and all this other stuff and then he ended up back in kingston pen and so this song is real life you know this is like what actually happened papa's in the pen so um that that's a little excerpt from my from my childhood there um so that's that's some real real beep yeah, so let's let's dive into specific songs on the album. So I have I have sure. questions here. I have comments. Uh, we're already talking about Papa's in the pen. So you have Aaron Sterling on drums, who's been John Mayer's drummer since 2011. Uh, I've seen John Mayer like 10 times live. John Mayer is one of my favorites. So that, that that's so amazing. He, man, he just with John Mayer is enough. Like that's huge. But like he's played with Taylor Swift, Sarah Bareilles, Civil Wars, Marin Morris. It's wild. What was it like playing with him? Um, and I also want to say that I, I think the solo on that song is one of the best guitar solos on the album. Oh, thank you very much. Um, Aaron, okay, so what's crazy is I, I think I started following him during the pandemic. And I mean, I follow a bunch of musicians and there's some like wicked players and stuff. But what drew me to him was his humor. This guy is so funny. Like he would, he has this, I, I can't describe his humor. It's, it's, it's Aaron Sterling humor. Like this guy is so funny. And so because I kept finding myself going back to his videos or showing people his videos, I was like, I want to hire that guy. You know, I want, I want a bit of that in my life. You know, So, so that's why I reached out to him in the first place. And, um, and he just destroys on this song. I mean, what's crazy about Aaron is he can do anything. Like he plays all these different styles. He can create all these different sounds and, and soundscapes. And he's just, wicked wicked player um and so his process was really interesting too what you do is you you send him the tune and then you facetime that morning before he does the session and uh you talk about it you see how you know what are you thinking i should do here da, 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 da. 
he goes and records it, sends you a mix, a mix, like he does a mix of his drums in the tune. Here it is. What do you think? And you, you can give him direction at that point. You've got his services for a couple hours. And so he sent it and uh, I said, well, it sounds perfect. He goes, I mean, I can do other things. Do you want me to take another crack at it? I can try some, another approach, whatever. And I was like, how do you feel about it? He goes like, I think it's, I think it's great actually, but I'm happy to do more. And I was like, this is perfect. Like, let's not like, that was your initial reaction. That's your initial, you know, gut, gut uh, instinct. That's the one, you know, and, and it's, it's just killing. Yeah. So the very first song on the album, everything now features another great drummer. So you have Stanton Moore, who's collaborated with Tom Morello of Raging Eats Machine, one of my favorite bands. There's a cool breakdown in the song where he does something awesome on the toms. Did, did you consciously say, okay, I got this great drummer. I'm going to leave this little bit. And did you say, dude, play something awesome? Is that how that went down? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, so Stanton Moore, also known for working with Galactic and, you know, he's, He's like known as like the New Orleans drummer, you know, because he knows all the second line stuff, which is like a lost art form. So few people are actually concentrating on that, even though it exists, whatever, like even drummers I've worked with, they're not even familiar with what second line is or or how significant it or, or the it's its own style that's completely separate from everything else, you know, and um, and I had seen him in New Orleans live and he is the greatest drummer I've ever seen live in my life. And I, I can say that with confidence. I mean, the guy was playing everything from like blues shuffles to like jazz swing stuff to um, more contemporary music. You know, it's like he was doing it all and just watching him play. I was, cause you know, obviously because I started on drums, it's like seeing him as like, uh, like, how are you this capable of just killing it on all these different styles? And I met him that night too. And, and, uh, just said hello, did a quick, snapped a quick photo with him. And then when I was writing this tune, I was like, I want a New Orleans groove on this. Well, who do you go to for a New Orleans groove? You go to Stanton Moore. And so that's when I reached out to him. And yes, as you said, um, look, I'm going to put something in there. This is, you know, I've got to do something to like feature him. And uh, so put, put in those little drum breaks before the guitar solo. So you mentioned to me that blues albums don't really have singles, but in this case, the song Keeping Me Up, there's a music video that's in the works. So we'll consider this the first single. Uh, what can you share with the JW Jones fans about this upcoming music video? Oh, about the video itself. Um, can I talk about the song first? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. All right. So, um, so I came up with this idea. Um, the first line of the song, I hear you talking in your sleep. And that came to me and I was like, I need to build a, an entire song around that theme. And so I wrote a bunch of lyrics, wrote a bunch of ideas, came up with that riff. You know, I came up with that thing and um, brought it to Gordy and we finished it together at, at his studio in Austin. And by the way, I was at a studio in Austin in the month of August and it was blazing hot and Gordy's theory about songwriting is you've got to, there's got to be some suffering involved. So we sat outside, not in the air conditioning, outside on the deck of the studio and worked on that song together and just kept bouncing ideas, making the lines better and better and better and better. And his thing is, can you make it 5% better? And so if you can make it 5% better, you do. 
and you just keep going until you get to a point where you're like, this is great. And then you can move on to the next step, you know, thinking about the, the arrangement of the song. So anyway, that's how that came to be in terms of the tune. And, uh, and I had this crazy guitar effect on it too, that, that Gordy loved and wanted to use. So you hear that this weird kind of alien like sound. Um, so that, that made it onto the track as well. But uh, the music video is all thanks to um, my buddy, Josh O'Connor, um, Arms Race Productions. He, he's actually the video guy for all the, the Red Black stuff. So anything you see that's a video of the Red Blacks, that's my buddy, Josh. And he's done many of my music videos over the years and uh, EPKs and all that kind of stuff. And so his idea was to have me wearing all white in a white room and playing, doing a performance video with my white Strat which is the guitar on the track. And, uh, and so that to be part of it. And then the other part of it to be me in like, a in a hotel bed, you know, shot from above. So I'm like singing upwards at the camera. And, uh, so there's an upward shot and then there's a sideways shot. And, uh, so we, we shot that a couple of weeks ago and it's, uh, it's in the editing process now. So the song has two guitar solos. So my question is JW, sometimes is one guitar solo just not enough on a song not when it's as short as the first one on this on this track <laughs> all right all right so need a little more love you know that's true i'm going to share my screen here i have a picture let me know if you can see this can you see this picture i can yes i can can okay so i want to talk about two songs take your time and good to be true which yeah. features these two gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, can you can you share who these two guys are? These two legends, and um, you know how big of a uh, influence they had on this album. Look at me! I've got a silly looking smile on my face. I don't know if you're going to see that on the podcast or not on the actual video part, but uh, I've got this huge smile on my face. So Gordy Johnson with a hat, um, obviously from Big Sugar, and uh, produced the majority of this record. So he's uh, he's on Good to Be True. Uh, as a guest and then uh that feller in the middle there that's that's jimmy vaughn my uh my hero my living hero four-time grammy award winner it's wild yeah yeah i mean look we talked about awards right yeah it's it's cool that he won four grammys but what's cooler by a landslide is that his guitar playing has influenced so many guitar players like hundreds thousands of guitar players it's it's unbelievable there, there's jimmy vaughn in every single blues guitar player you hear today um in some way shape or form they've listened to the t-birds they've tried to do something that he does um and what i love about jimmy is like he's like the king of the less is more school you know the king of cool they call him and uh he just never overplays he plays what's perfect every single time and uh you know i've i've been meeting him since tony d got me backstage to meet him at the ottawa blues fest in when i was 17 years old and so since then i've run into him several times and uh and it's just it's been incredible to get to know him a little bit and uh sit down with him and he invited me out to lunch last time i was in in austin before this was about a year before this was recorded and um and then agreed to be on the record so it's like yeah, I, I still to this day, and this is not even a joke. This isn't like I'm playing it up for the for the interview, but I still keep waking up sometimes, or I'm thinking about things I need to accomplish. And I go, oh, I want to record with Jimmy Vaughn, like that's my thing. I really want to 
And then I stopped myself, that already happened, what? And I, I literally can't even believe that that has already happened because it still pops into my head. It's such a, it's a memory or a thought or an idea that, that came back to me so many times over the years that now that it's happened, it's like, I haven't dealt with that. I haven't processed that yet. You know, it's, it's so strange, but um, yeah, I'm so grateful. So on the song, take your time. He, he plays a guitar solo on that. And then you guys are kind of trading at the end. Yeah. He plays rhythm throughout the whole track as well. We both played rhythm parts. He's playing the jump, 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 which is like Jimmy Vaughn. There's not a single guitar player on the planet and let alone maybe in history, other than maybe Eddie Taylor, where he got this from that plays that the way he plays that like, he is like the top of the food chain. And, and to the point where if I sat down and tried to play that, there are, there are micro timing things that he does that nobody else gets. He just has this feel that is like next level on that rhythm, on that style of rhythm, uh, which does go back to Eddie Taylor and the old Jimmy Reed recordings. And, uh, and then he plays uh, Yeah. The first, the main guitar solo on it, he plays, um, and, uh, and then we traded at the end, which was like, wow, I'm trading with Jimmy Vaughn. What? <laughs> That's so wild. And then on the good to be true track. So you have Gordy Johnson and he's not just playing guitar. He's playing like guitar, bass, backups, key. Like he's playing everything. It's, it's wild. This guy's so talented. Oh, he's so talented. And what's funny about that tune to me is, uh, you know, people always talk about big sugar being a loud band, you know, everyone jokes about it, blah, blah, blah. I think Gordy just has made that part of the identity. And it's like, some people think, oh, this is a bad thing. Everyone calls him that. He just like owns it. And I think he's like totally cool with it. Um, I haven't asked him that actually, I should ask him about that. But what's funny is he put his guitar stuff on there and sent me a mix. I was like, do you think the do you think the guitar is a bit loud? He goes, I'll tell you when the guitar is too loud. <laughs> and that was the end of that conversation. So there's a, there's a lyric in that in that song that says, "I'll be digging a hole so you can pull me through." Is that an Easter egg for Big Sugar fans? I love it. You know what, man? I don't think either of us realized that when we wrote that. And I do remember writing that particular line with him. And I can't remember who came up with it, whether it was me or him. But in any case, it hit me after. And um, and I was like, oh, yeah, digging a hole. There that's their it is. signature You're song, baby. Me. Yeah, exactly. So that is, that's a cool Easter egg, like you say. That's awesome. And Accidental. Accidental. And uh, I have uh, kind words from the legend himself. So Gordy Johnson oh of Big Sugar, he says... You can't sing it convincingly if you ain't lived it. And my friend JW lived it while we were making it. So that's from Gordy Johnson. So that's about wow. authenticity uh, from a guy that is known for being as authentic as they come. Yeah, well, I, I, I know for sure what he's referencing there. I mean, if not the general, the sessions, but uh, that tune we talked about earlier, When You Left, the one about my mom's passing, I sang it a few times and then I sat down and I was just like resting for a second and I lost it. I was just like tears. I, I couldn't talk to him. I was like, uh, he's like, it's okay, man. Take your time. And then, and then as I'm still crying, he's like, all right, sing it again. So I got up and had to just sing it again. I was like, yeah, this is what we're doing. And I've never had that kind of reaction. It was just, it was because the music, and the lyrics just all worked 
together in such a beautiful way. So that yeah, was nice. So the the song when you left had uh, the Texas horns on it, and man, that when you go high with the when you left that that is the money note, man. When you oh, get to you. that, that's where I'm like, yeah, that to me that slid the song into my four favorite songs oh, right man. there because of that 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 one hook just gets me every time. Thank you, I appreciate that, man. And you make me wait for it. I think you have like a few verses before you go and hit that note. Yeah, so it's, yeah, yeah. it's like the payoff is waiting for you. Um, I guess diving into one more song before we wrap up. So uh, I choose you, man, that is such a catchy song. I mean, the hook in the chorus is undeniable. I love that the acoustic guitar is, is featured. Um, I guess my question is, was this written on an acoustic guitar if you end up featuring an acoustic guitar in it? so prominently yeah um i i can't say it was written on the acoustic but what is special about the acoustic is that that's my childhood acoustic guitar um so my my parents bought that for me and and gave it to me probably when i was like four or five like way too young to actually play it but it sat in its case and every now and then i'd open it up and do the spice bottle thing you know like we talked about um and then that was the guitar that i learned everything on and not only did i learn how to play some chords and chord changes but I was bending the strings a full step like Albert King on that guitar. So the whole fretboard is worn down and uh, I would bend. Can I get my guitar and show you? Can I do that? Yeah, go okay, ahead. Watch two seconds. We'll give him a second here to walk through the studio and grab his guitar. Oh, he's on his way back. All right making noise throwing this headphone down anyway so this is the guitar and um all you can see on the frets see how they're all worn and that's literally because i was doing what no normal person would do which is like bending like you know so that's that's not what is usually done on an acoustic guitar but the other thing about it is um, at one point I wanted to have the action a little bit lower. So I removed the entire nut. So I was a kid. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So I, I removed the nut. And then what that does is makes the guitar not stay in tune very well. So Eric Eggleston, God love him. We had to tune the guitar just for the riff, right? So we tune the guitar just for the, right? And then I had to tune the guitar again to do the other part. And then I had to tune the guitar again to do the other part so that the actual two notes that I was hitting were in tune, you know, even though the whole guitar wouldn't have been in tune, the parts had to be in tune. So he was extremely patient <laughs> with me uh, doing that, but that's what makes that special is that that's my childhood guitar. So I wanted that to be on there. So before we wrap up, can you handle kind words from one more person? I know it's a lot. I, I mean, mean, I don't want to build the I ego up to. too too high here, but uh, <laughs> I have some kind words from one more gentleman uh, who was a big part of the songwriting. It looks like he's on, I don't know, nine of the songs or most of the songs. Yeah, so this is yeah. a Dick Cooper from the Cooper Brothers. All right. And uh, he says, it's called the music business. And JW gets both parts, the music and the business part. He works harder than just about anyone I have met in the business. In regards to the album and songwriting, he's easy to work with. Why? Because he defers to my superior knowledge of songwriting. I kid. 
<laughs> we have a, you guys are always after each other. Uh, we have a really good working relationship writing songs and there's hardly ever any disagreements. That's from Dick. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he is such a talent, man. He's like his first instinct 100% of the time is better than my first instinct when it comes to the lyric side of things, you know? And so, um, I love that about him. And then, and he's, he's cool with also being open enough to letting me, you know, fight for some of the, some of the things that I think are important, you know? So that's what makes us such a good team. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks for reaching out to him. You're very welcome. So we're down to a final few questions. These are the, the deeper, these are the, the, the hardest questions. Can you, can you handle just two, Ready, three baby. more questions? All right. Yes. So this is hypothetical. So in the distant future, I'm talking in a hundred years, 500 years, a thousand years. If most of today's music has disappeared from public consciousness, but just one JW Jones song can still be around in that future that people are listening to what this is hard because you have 12 albums. It's easier when someone's just releasing their debut album. But if you could pick just one song to represent you and your music doesn't have to be the most popular song. It could be for whatever reason you want. What song would you put in that time capsule for people to listen to? And if it's too hard to pick just one, you could do maybe two or three, but. Well, I mean, that's interesting because, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to pick like a love song, you know, because there are other artists that are more suited for that. Um, on my high temperature album, there's, there's a song called, uh, who I am. And that's one I wrote with Dick Cooper. And I mean, by wrote with Dick Cooper, I mean, like, it's my life story in a sense, but he helped it come to life. And so I think what's special about that song is that it's blues. It's got blues guitar, you know, very clearly blues guitar. Um, it's, it's a very simple riff. It, it's only a couple of chords. I think it's only two chords, almost the entire song. I don't think it even it might hit a five chord once. Um, and, and it's true and honest. And it's about, it's about real life. It's about my childhood and my, my upbringing and, and up, up to who I was at that time, you know, so the song's called who I am. And that would be my time capsule song. That's like a biography in a song. That's perfect. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. so apropos. Uh, so, so we have a tradition on this podcast where we have the current guest leave a question for the next guest without knowing who it is. They don't know male or female, what age profession, nothing. So you just put it up into the ether and then we ask. So the first is the question for you is left from the last guest. So this is from John Wysocki, who was the drummer for Stained. I mean, these were my heroes, sold 15 million albums in like 2001. They were the biggest band in the world wow. with Nickelback and Incubus. Wow. And uh, he's now at a band called Lydia's Castle. Uh, so his question is, does anyone in your band think that the world is flat? <laughs> so for the flat earthers, uh, flat earthers, I mean, you may have flat earther fans, you know, um, I'm not going to diss them. I'm, I'm only going to say uh, the answer is no, but I can't just end it there. I was in a parking lot last June. So about a year ago in uh, Norman, Oklahoma, ladies and gentlemen, Norman, Oklahoma. And, uh, we ran into this gentleman because Jacob Clark, my bassist was, uh, was liking his car, started talking about his car. And the guy, after talking about the car for a minute said, uh, you know, the earth is flat, right? And we went, Oh, 
And we didn't we didn't want to have a discussion about our perspective on the earth being flat or not. So we kind of just like stayed really neutral and we were like, oh, oh, is that right? Oh, you think so? Well, yeah, obviously. Have you ever looked at the sunrise or the whatever that he explained it like the sun going down or something? And it was he didn't just, convince you. I mean, it was getting close. But uh, <laughs> anyway, long story short, we met a flat earther. I have met a flat earther and I love these people and anyone that doesn't like them. They're just they're not trying hard enough to be open. That's the bottom line. A few more drinks and you might have been a believer. So, uh, okay, can, do you have a question that you can provide for the next guest? And I actually, I had a bunch of guests booked up until this one. And then today I'm about to sit down and book like the next five guests. So I actually don't know who's next. So I can't give Perfect. you any any hints here. Okay, no hints. Um, who is your music celebrity crush? And it's better if it's like an unusual crush. Like you don't know why you are you have a crush on them but you do okay so it can't be obvious it can't be like shania twain because she's like a smoke show you can't no it's got to be like an unusual crush that's my question i had a co-worker that was obsessed with sam rockwell to tie in with your oh, your story yeah, yeah. and and he's not like your traditional good-looking guy so it was one of those things yes he is what do you is mean he? sam rockwell i think, so. I, I he think usually he's a, plays these kind of man. weird character anyways anyways i'll leave that up she can have her obsession here uh when when you look back on your life and career what are you most proud of and what are you most grateful for um i, I think i'm most proud of sticking to it sticking with it and just continuing to to move forward regardless you know like continuing to just keep trying to do this like i think there are times where i could have gotten a a, a government job or doing done something else that would be easier in the sense that I would make the same amount of money every year and I would go to work every day and I wouldn't have to do the hustle and the and all that stuff that I do uh, have to do with the music business. So I'm proud of myself for that. That that's pretty that's it's not for the faint of heart, you know, doing this, doing this for a living. Um, so in, in terms of um, grateful being grateful yeah i'm i'm grateful for all of the legendary musicians that i've run into that have taken their own time to whether it was talk to me respond to me um whether it's five minutes at a festival to chat or um you know being being uh generous enough to play on an album with me um these guys i mean they're the ones that keep the the dream alive you know like when i asked kim wilson to record with me he initially said no and then came back and said yes like that's a huge step you know because it all builds off of each other um you know the times i've played with buddy guy and and having him ask me to sit in with his band a couple times like whoa that i'm so grateful that these guys did that thing because they didn't have to you know none of these guys had to do any of this they could have been like best of luck with your music kid and i would have been like cool that's that's great. But the fact that they took one extra step is so huge to me. And it's actually changed my entire perspective of how I move forward now with helping younger players, you know, and uh, now when younger players come up to me, I always have time 100% of the time, if they send me a message or whatever, I respond 100% of the time, because these guys did it for me, I need to pay it forward, you know, if you could sit down next to your 10 year old self, 
and you could whisper words of advice. So if you look at all the life you've lived since 10 years old, the, the lessons and mentorship and the, the, the achievements and the failures, just everything, what advice do you give cute little JW Jones sitting there to help him through this human, human existence, through this uh, journey? Uh, listen first, pause, and then respond. Still working on it. <laughs> It's still a work in progress. Yeah. Listen first. Consider it. Then respond. Yes. So where can our listeners find you on social media if they want to uh, stay in the loop with what's going on with you, upcoming shows, new releases, the new music video, if they want to maybe reach out and, and say, hey, I'd love the interview or I love the new album or I'd love for you to play guitar on my next project. Where do they go to find you? Social media, website? Uh, so on the socials, it's JW Jones Blues altogether, JW Jones Blues. And I mean, I could rant about social media algorithms um, being such a total train wreck, but for anyone that's following their favorite artists, if they have an email list, join the email list. And so for us, it's at jw-jones.com. That's the website. Join the email list. There's a form right on the main page at the bottom. And that is at least direct. You know you're going to get that information to your email. You could follow me on socials. Great. But the algorithms are not our friend. And I could be posting about a show that is like, whether it's two weeks or two months from now, and you'll never, ever see it because the, I'm not paying for the post necessarily. You'll never see it. So... Uh, join my email list, please. And uh, so again, at the website, jw-jones.com. Is there anything you'd like to say to the fans that have been following you and supporting you for the last couple of decades? Any words for the fans? Thank you. I mean, I, I can't do this without people, you know, and it's, I've spent a lot of the interview talking about the people who have helped me from, you know, a music standpoint and a business standpoint, but if no one's buying the music or showing up to the shows, then there, this whole thing falls, you know, the, the house of cards will fall. And so, um, thank you all to, for continuing, continuing to just buy tickets and show up and be there. It's like, that's the best. I can't, can't do it without, can't do it without you. So as we wrap up, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a singer, as a songwriter, as a guitarist. I want to acknowledge you for uh, having the courage to pursue your dream in an industry that isn't that... Uh, forgiving sometimes you know it, it it is the greatest and the worst industry all at the same time uh, i want to say thank you for being such a great ambassador for my hometown of ottawa you know over a couple of decades all i've heard is that you're a professional and that you're kind and you're a gentleman so that goes a long way for putting ottawa on the map for all the right reasons uh, i want to thank you for putting out great music um i i want to thank you for introducing blues to the next generation, keeping that that genre alive, keeping the dream alive for, for young blues guitarists as well. And last but not least, I want to say thank you for sitting down with me for the last couple hours for this interview. Uh, it's awesome to speak to a, a local legend, a fellow uh, Ottawa musician. I really appreciate it. So uh, JW Jones, thank you so much for your time. Oh, Joel, thank you so much, man. I love what you're doing and uh, I'm a fan of your podcast. So it's it's an honor to be on it. Thank you.
Thank you so much. You're very welcome. So to the, the listeners of the podcast, to the JW Jones fans, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview? You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message. And I'll see you on the next episode.